Driven Minds Podcast. This is Franz Bowen. This is Trav Weeks. Yes, sir. Season five, Driven Minds, Driven Society Podcast. And we're here with um, the one and only uh, founder of Super Heroic, um, Mr. Jason Maiden. Yes, sir. Peace, peace, peace. What to do? What up? What up? What up? Everything is good, man. How you feeling today, brother? Man, can't call it. I got another day, so it's a blessing, man. I try not to complain when you when you breathe it. Absolutely. You know, the opposite. Absolutely. I'm not trying to think about that. Absolutely, man. Um, honestly, brother, like you're definitely an inspiration in the space. Um, you know, it's a it's a it's a circle of uh trailblazers and pioneers that are really doing amazing things in culture and pushing culture forward, whether it be to design and technology and you're you're definitely one of the leaders. So we salute you on everything you're doing, man. Appreciate that, man. Um, I mean, to be honest with you, I wish I could take credit for it. I'm just running my route, man. God's the quarterback. I'm just getting open, yeah, getting, my, I, getting my looks, man. I, I, <laughs> I hear that 100%. But representation is key, man. Just, you know, who you are, like how you represent yourself, you know, what you look like. It's like, you know, just inspiration for other brothers to do it themselves. And you're doing it with a snapback on saying you can cool and still do your shit. You know what I mean? So I respect that. Yeah, man. So uh, well, won't you, uh, let's jump right in, man. Tell us a little bit about, um, you know, Super Heroic, how, how uh, you uh, kind of got started and, uh, you know, where it is today. Yeah, um, so I would say Super Heroic as an idea started when I was around seven years old. Mm. Um, I was a child that was in a hospital with an illness that was um, contracted through just physical play. I was, I was on a sleepover or something and got bit by a spider. It developed into septicemia, which is a blood infection. Whoa. It almost cost me my life. Wow. wow. Yeah. And so, you know, being in a hospital and having people discuss your mortality, you really start to think about mm. what is the quality of life you want to have and what's most valuable to you. And in that moment, as a kid, I just kept thinking, man, I just want to be with my friends. I just want to play. Mm-hmm. And that part of me never really left. And so it manifested into a business well, my son also was faced with a medical challenge roughly around the same age. I was an executive at Nike, one of the youngest, actually the youngest executive ever in design to be in a position I was in. Nice. Just got back from grad school at Stanford, um, you know, nice. basically had my dream job that I wrote down on a piece of paper at the age of 10. My wife and I wow. talked about it, prayed about it when we found out what was happening with my son. Walked in the next day, man, and just and just resigned and realized mm. that I needed to apply my gifts and talents to building stronger children instead of fixing broken adults, which mm. is what I was doing, you know, in health and wellness. And so what started as a research project at Stanford, you know, started to transition into NGO, eventually became a for-profit business. Um, and where we are today is, um, man, multiple awards, you know, that are all really, for me, emotional because there are awards that black people have never won in the design space. Like mm-hmm. we talk about design and fashion, but when we talk about industrial design and product design, like physical products, not apps, mm-hmm. there has been zero representation of African-Americans specifically who've been able to dominate at the global level or be recognized globally. So, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, that recognition has parlayed, um, you know, into man, like tremendous partnerships will be announced in Q1, nice. um, the 19, you know, the team is growing. We're moving to Oakland because I really want to make sure that, you know, we're congruent in our tone of voice, but also in our location, mm. um, you know, currently Palo Alto. And last but not least, man, we're a company driven through fun and family and just 
transparency in who we are. What you see is what you get. I wear my snapback because that's authentically me. Mm. And I feel like if I shrink or hide, I'm not allowing other people to have permission to be themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, So I just try myself, even if that means losing deals or means not getting a look from an investor, I'm cool with that because I'd rather sleep at night knowing I kept my soul versus, you know, trying to get a check. So, you know, that's where we are today. Absolutely. Matter of fact, um, wow. First of all, that's amazing. Congrats. Um, Coming from Chicago and the south side of Chicago, it seems like Chicago has this like really creative, artistic community that's wants to make their voice heard, right? And the type of you know artistry that um, Chicago has is uh, can be world changing, right? It can sit on the top of the world. They can like push culture forward in the most astronomical of ways. Um, especially in the world of design and aesthetic, there's a certain culture, there's a certain vibe there that you really can find in that pocket of community. Um, what, how has Chicago been a, a, a factor in your life as well as helping you with your design, with your aesthetic, with the way you think, how had that, how has that contributed to, to your works of art? Man, you know, honestly, brother, I'm not saying this because I'm looking at y'all. That is the best question that I've had in my lifetime around how Chicago has impacted me. Normally I need to explain to people, but Mm -hmm. you know, that's dope that you were able to tease that out. Appreciate. So I I guess I, no doubt, no doubt. I guess the way to best explain it is to start with a a quick summary of Chicago itself and what it means to black creativity. So when you think about the founding of the city, it was founded by Jean Baptiste Toussaint, a Haitian man Mm. who came up from Haiti to do trade with the native Americans. So Chicago was founded by a black man. So you have to buy an entrepreneurial black man at that. It also, when you think about the Great Migration, was the place where blacks in the South came to develop what we now know as an entrepreneurial endeavor. So they came up for jobs, to own homes, to do research, to, you know, go live in Bronzeville, which was, you know, popping before Harlem started popping. Mm. And then you think about Chicago and where it's centrally located. It's an epicenter of you know, I would say uh, global commerce and global transference of skill sets because you had the train routes, you had the the commercial exchange, you had mm. architecture, you had so much that was happening that in the city, despite it being highly segregated, you had a highly integrated, multifaceted understanding of creation. Mm. Now, what allowed that to persist mm. and scale into the black community, specifically the South Side, was the mashup of first generation blacks from the South and first generation Eastern Europeans. What Mm. people don't realize is when the Bauhaus was shut down in Germany, those designers and architects like Walter Gropius, Mies van der Rohe, they moved to Chicago and set the Bauhaus up at the Illinois Institute of Technology. Mm. So now you have the fathers of modernism, you have an open air architectural museum with the way the city's built, Mm -hmm. and you have the foundation of entrepreneurship from a black man who came from Haiti then you mix in Fred Hampton and the Panthers. You mix in all the ex-military brothers. Fred you mix Hampton. in Nation of Islam. You mix in, wow. you know, everything that happened with music and blues. You can't help but have this sense of positivity around who you are, mm. but an indebtedness to your people to create history. Like we don't in Chicago, you're not raised to be a consumer. You're raised to be a creator. Mm. If you're consuming, mm. then we just call you a new you a neutron, and you don't even have anything <laughs> to contribute to the conversation. <laughs> and if you're creating. You know, you're an atom, you're in motion, you're causing friction. And so we're we're pushed to be creators and have an opinion. It's why you, you know, you have to understand the energy you see from some of the most notable figures. We all come from the same neighborhood, but the reason why the energy is so intense 
is because we never were told or treated or educated to be intellectually shackled. Everywhere you go is like, black man, you a God. Yo, you can create, you come from this, you come from that. And it's reinforced in the environment. So if you lead the South side and you feel inferior, then you miss the whole point. And so wow. for us, it's like, <laughs> it's like we just raise, we raise to create, you know? Wow. Yo, that's powerful. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Definitely, man. Um, Even on top of that, like also that, that foundation has, especially when you're just telling us your story, that foundation has given you your sense of, you know, um, of identity. And there's another layer to your identity as well as family. And, yep. uh, and there's a lot of entrepreneurial and creative pursuits that's come from your, it seems like your love and uh, foundation of family. Um, can you explain that dynamic? Like when you got that when you when you when you heard the news about you know your um your child I'm sorry to hear that was going through the uh, the um the health problem the health issue and you had to make that decision to leave pretty sure a high paying job with a lot of benefits and and uh, amenities and you had to make that decision to go out on your own what were you thinking about what was what, what was going through your mind to make that decision to make that leap of faith Yeah I mean you know first I think you know um the key word in, in, in the question is faith, mm. right? And it's, it's doing things without evidence of an outcome. Mm. And I already had been through the worst things that a person can go through in life, good and bad, but I wasn't afraid of struggle. I wasn't afraid of suffering. And I knew that if all I was giving up was a paycheck, that's not much. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not much. I can, I can go out. I know I can make money. I know I can find a way to create. I'll drive Uber. I'll cut hair. I'll do tattoos. Mm-hmm. I was doing logos for $100. I don't care what it is, man. I'll always find a way. To, 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 to increase my earning potential. But mm-hmm. the reason why family is so critical is because I'm not thinking about just the archetype of what it means to be a father. I'm thinking about the behaviors that I want my children to carry forward beyond the time that I'm on this planet. I can't tell them to go out there and be leaders and then be a slave to a paycheck and be controlled by somebody else's you know economics. Mm-hmm. So I never was in a position where Nike's income was my sole income. I never you know had more um, spending than I had savings. Like I lived a very frugal life so I can have that freedom to leave mm. what I wanted to. Mm. And so, you know, when I dipped out, it was a very clear decision. My son needed me, you know, it's all good, you know, to be hanging out behind red velvet ropes and going to parties, but I'm an introvert by nature. Mm. And half the time I'm on, a, I'm texting my wife when I'm at the club. So I'm like, why even be at the club? I don't, <laughs> it's not my thing. Mm. And, you know, I just knew that I, I, you know, the, the urgency and preciousness of now. I wanted to be present in my son's life. I didn't want to just be the dude who went to work and came home. I wanted to be a present, active figure in his well-being and development. Mm. And it just required me to, to leave. And, and the reason why that's so important is in Chicago, you know, all you have is family. It's like you got the hustle and, and kind of flavor of New York, but you got the Southern kind of connectedness. Like we got the best of both worlds, you know? And all I've been taught my whole life is family is everything. Your name is everything. That's mm. what you take with you is your name and the memories your family hold. Mm-hmm. And I, I really believe that. And I know in the startup culture, there's this myth that you have to trade off between family yeah, and absolutely. your business to be yep. successful. I think it's a complete lie. No, you just have mm-hmm. to focus on what you're doing in the moment. And it's shifting your definition and your understanding of time. We've been conditioned to believe in how the Greeks define time, right? They had two versions, Kronos and Kairos. Kronos was the underpinning concept around democracy. You needed to control people by measuring the output of their effort. It's chronological. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Kairos is about the opportune time to take action. It's the quality, right? It's it's how much you're present in a moment. That's God-based time versus man-based time. Mm-hmm. I only operate on God-based time. I'm looking for quality Oof. and high impact. I don't believe in chronological time. I believe in Kairos time because I'm here in this moment. I'm going to give you my best attention and be present. And I don't care if we you know, we, we check off 20 questions. I just want to make sure that the two or three we get through are quality, right? And so I don't subscribe to being controlled or mentally shackled to other people's measurement of success. Like my success is having two healthy kids that have a strong faith that do good in the world. It's not my bank account, brother. It's my energy that I, that I focus on. Oh, so, man. It's only 15 minutes Yo. in the interview. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, about to, Yo, crazy. I'm about to call you uh, Pastor Jason, Pastor Aiden in this. You got a plate? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> what offering, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> only got changed, but you know what I'm saying? You got that. Man, I wanted to, um, you know, dive into this particular question. Um, in terms of identity, right? I mean, you seem to be somebody that's, you know, very strong in, in their own identity and will. Um, why is it so important? Uh, for you to help shape that for children you know what i'm saying like what i mean you said you 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 started to discover your mortality at a very early age but um you know how do you how do you relay um that type of identity to children who might not have had you know um such a detrimental thing happen to them early yeah and that that's a great question man It, it all happens through play so the highest the highest point of creativity is measured by nasa is the age of four. And if you correlate that against our educational system. You said the age of four is the highest of... Four years old. Wow. That's the height of our creativity in North America. Wow. The reason why that exists is because if you look at the pedagogical models that are used in modern education, they're based on an agricultural calendar and a school-to-prison pipeline. So at four years old, you're completely conditioned to react to the sound of a bell, to be in your seat, and to submit to an authoritative and authoritarian rule. You're not Mm. encouraged to explore and create. You're told to take this test, do this thing, be in this structure. If you look at the prison culture, it's the same thing. You go to bed, you eat what we tell you, you go when that alarm goes off, you go back to your cell, your classroom. It's a very deliberate conditioning and it happens. What we're doing with Superheroic to unlock that and prevent children from losing imagination is starting at the age of four, everything we do allows the brain itself to be the technological advancement. So when you look at our product, you look at the packaging and how it opens, the sound chip. We don't do the imagination part for kids. We let them fill in the blank, right? A lot of technology mm-hmm. takes away imagination. It doesn't let the mind's eye see what it wants to see. We tell people what to see. Mm-hmm. The longer you do that, the less people will start to create and ask questions. When people don't create and ask questions, they can be controlled. So by giving children this ability to understand the power of play, discovery, critical discourse, like on a playground, bro, I don't care what you look like. Do you know the rules of dodgeball? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's it. It's like, do you know the rules? So it's this beautiful sentiment that happens in play in childhood development that if you can play together, you can live together. So as, as the kids mm-hmm. grow, they see each other as, you know, complementary in a play environment. Our belief is that that can extend into society. So this isn't just about physical play. This is about a radical behavior change to get people to understand the importance of play and development as a medi- not, as an alternative to medicinal, you know, um, suppression of children's energy. Because now, if your kid has a lot of energy, put them on Ritalin. You know, mm. put them in special education mm-hmm. versus go outside and play. So, looking at countries like Sweden, they started to prescribe play instead of you know behavior modification drugs. Looking at schools in Texas that have added two recesses, 
like you can start to see, man, like it's literally simple. It's just getting kids to go outside and make believe, encouraging that, rewarding it. And a lot of what we see with behavior disorders, a lot of what we see with stress management, it'll start to alleviate itself because people will start to have that make believe. They'll start to have quality time mm. again instead of performative, measured, quantitative time. Mm. So, you know, I, I spent, man, about five, six years just researching mm. how I wanted to approach the market and what was critical in the childhood space. Um, and I wanted to do things that were positive and, and action oriented, not just me going around talking about obesity and blah, blah, blah. But no, let's put some skin in the game. Let's get kids moving. Let's build a system that's scalable. Let's get them at an age where they can develop healthy personality traits, problem solving skills, coping mechanisms. Then they would become a teenager. They're not, they're not going to worry about certain things. They're not going to be afraid to do something different because they've been conditioned to be creators. Mm, nice, nice. That's powerful. What What were some models? You said you spent five years researching. What were some um, models or uh, that you um, experimented with previously before you found your secret sauce? Yeah, I mean, I, I did everything from uh, I joined a hardware startup that was focused on multi-timeplex spectroscopy, which is measuring liquids using light to determine what um, allergens may be present in liquid to trigger reactions in kids' physiology. So long story short, like if you're allergic to dairy, can we tell what's in your food? Because that was one of the first things that my son was was showing was, you know, food intolerances and allergies. So I said, okay, let me go to medical route. Let me let me think about that. Hardware, medical, deep, deep, deep data. Um, wasn't for me. You know, I wasn't a founder, but I learned a lot about, you know, how to build a hardware startup with no big brand or big budgets. That failed. Um, then at Stanford, I started to research nonprofit models. I wanted to reinvent the Boy Scouts. I called it the tribe. Mm. Boy Scouts, they intend, you know, they supposedly are in place to teach kids survival skills, but they don't. Like, I don't need to know how to navigate with the stars. I need to know how to navigate in the internet, but they're not mm. teaching kids how to, how to do that. So I said, okay, what's the Boy Scouts for the modern male, which is the minority male, to navigate society instead of women? That was great, but then I found myself spending more time trying to raise capital for the nonprofit through you know fundraisers than actually solving a problem. So I'm like, no, I got to have a self-sustaining model where it's for profit. We generate the revenue. We reinvest in programs rather than ten company. Um, joined a, a another startup focused on software and, and communication and influences because I figured, okay, what if we can get influences to have you know dialogue with the audience? Maybe that's an encouragement mechanism. And then finally, what did it for me, man, was Somebody told me that I had the potential to be a founder. I, I've been trained my whole career to be the guy who helps everybody else become famous. And I'm super mm. cool with that. I have no desire to get clout. I have no desire to do anything to point back to God. But one investor, Ryan Sweeney, who hired me at Excel to be a designer in residence, he was like, you have what it takes to be a founder. You just don't know it yet. When you have your idea, it's going to be lightning in the bottle. Mm. Like I remember he said that. I'm like, bro, that's crazy. Two years after he said that, I walked into his office and said, I got my idea and I, you know, I'm inspired by what you told me, lightning in the bottle. That's what a logo has, the lightning bolt. And I said, mm. you know, this is what I'm building. This is the opportunity. He wrote one of the first checks. And then uh, from there, man, I just started crafting, you know, what I believe is a mixture of Nike, Disney and Nerf. Like I want an active play brand that creates dope content and gets people back outside again. Mm. How has it been navigating like, you know, um, like a suppressive system like most most um curriculums don't support you know play they've actually taken away the art programs and the recess program how do 
when you're when you're navigating, you know, like uh, I guess state by state for when you were doing like your your beta testing or what have you. Um, what kind of roadblocks yep. did you incur, and how and how do you now like? How can you circumvent that? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the first roadblock is is cognitive. It's fear based. Um, parents are fundamentally afraid to send their kids outside, mm. and the reason why is infrastructurally, tax dollars have been pulled away from building playgrounds, and they've been funneled into zoning communities for commercial usage because the kickbacks are better than having residential, mm-hmm. right? So if I'm a politician, I want that corporate kickback. You know, from that company campus, I'm not going to get a kickback from building a new neighborhood mm. for people to live in. And so once I realized the reason parents are afraid is because communities have been broken down, then we start to say, OK, well, how do we get them to not be afraid again? Right. We need to be trusted. That's why my lectures and going out and using research and pulling in people from the medical and, 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 and clinical communities to help evangelize this message are important. Second piece is knowing that kids, they don't really want to be on cell phones. They want to be outside. Like mm. the reason they stuck on tech is because we give them technology, not right. that they ask for it. Mm. Right. Like we feed, we feed them and then we complain about their behavior. So once we realize, like, wait, kids will choose an alternative. And we worked with the same group that does research for Disney, mm. um, a group named uh, Magic, Magic, M-I-G-I-D, amazing research firm. Um, and we did something, you know, a special research project. And what we discovered it's like, all right, kids want to be outside. They use imagination. They also really care about the quality of experience. But more importantly, they need to use their brains to make believe. So once I had those two big kind of findings, I was able to go and look at the people who are the practitioners, elementary school teachers. They fundamentally are now not only the caregiver, the educator, but now they're the facilitator of activity, even if they're not qualified. Mm-hmm. You know, the math teacher can be the gym teacher because mm-hmm. you just have a budget shortage. And so we said, all right, how do we relieve that? Can we privatize recess? Which then we invented the Hero Lab. It's a van that pulls up. We call it direct to community, not direct to consumer, because we're trying to serve communities. We facilitate an obstacle course. And the obstacle course is is designed very specifically to unlock certain behavioral responses from kids. And so with the obstacle course, it's controlled, it's thematic. The kids are called superheroes, so they feel heroic. It's Amazing. accessible to any any level of ability. And now teachers are like, wait, we don't have to pay for it. You facilitate it. And now kids are out here running. So now it's free. It's building a community, building a trust. But as we evolve and grow, we'll be able to use this data to create a monetizable, self-sustaining model where we fundamentally own free, unstructured play. And that's the end game because there's enough sports programs. There's enough after school, kick a ball, mm-hmm. throw a ball. What about just running and jumping and just being a kid? So that's what we're fighting to to own, and that's what we've been partnering. Why we've been partnering with educational institutions um, to do that. And I have, so, I have, my my other question is, um, why Oakland, man? I mean, uh, recently I, I've been seeing in the news that a lot of um, it's ironic that Oakland is kind of the place that you're targeting right. because they've been losing all of their sports teams. You know, like yep. so the the idea of play is is kind of sad now. You know, it, they they they're about to lose the A's. They're losing the um yep. the Raiders, like it's it's crazy. Yep. What, it's like but Jersey. why? Yeah, but but why Oakland, man? So Oakland is Chicago sister city. Most people don't realize that, right? So I'll start with the most obvious, the Black Panther Party. I mean, Fred Hampton was the most vocal member in the party, and he was under the age of twenty one, mm-hmm. and he's Chicago Southside, right? So growing up with family members that that served alongside Fred. All I've ever heard is that Oakland is the epicenter of 
black empowerment. Oakland's the epicenter of equality and civil rights. Oakland's the place you go when you want to really fight and stand up for people who are disenfranchised. So I want my company and my legacy to be built not on the backs of just venture money, but on the backs of people who have been fighters, mm-hmm. fighters, freedom fighters. And I believe that play is a freeing element. So to have a presence in Oakland and a, with a positive tone of voice, I don't want the children of Oakland to believe they're abandoned. I want the children of Oakland to believe they're cared for, they're protected, and they're loved. So the sports team may be leaving, but we're going to be there and we're going to facilitate all types of stuff. We're going to make sure the babies have what they need. We're going to make sure the people in the community have a brand that they're proud of because the companies that market to you know, cities like Oakland, they really genuinely do not care about the well-being of the children. They just want you to buy that jersey, buy that sneaker, come to the game. But they're not there in the schools. They're not there on Tuesday during the daytime when a kid goes to school without anything to eat. They're not there when a kid is getting picked on walking home because they got shoes, they got holes in them. They're not there when a kid may run awkwardly because of their weight. We want to be there. So Oakland, to me, man, if we're not present, we're losing one of the most beautifully rich historical cities for our culture. And I just can't stand by and just see a bunch of bird scooters on the corner and people doing yoga and drinking, you know, macchiatos. <laughs> and they just uh-huh. erase a history that's so rich and, and, and so important to this region. Mm. Right. And, you know, it's bigger than just um, office space and rent. I- I'm trying to impact history, man. Mm-hmm. And I want to be part of something positive, you know, not part of something negative. Amazing, man. Because it's like, man, this is the type of comment we could talk for like days. Because yeah. I even have a question on the other side of things. Like, how have you been able to so much effectively navigate the venture capital world, right? Even especially as a, as a black man, as a minority-based you know, um, admire your own company. Even if you, I don't, you probably don't even look at yourself in that way, but how have you been able to navigate the venture capital world and um, apply it to your businesses? Because a lot of the times, you know, when we come up short, when we fail, that's kind of like we're out of here. You know what I mean? Is we don't really get that opportunity, that uh, um, the space to, to, to learn and grow from any type of like, you know, lessons learned or shortcomings or whatnot. Um, how have you found the confidence to be able to maneuver the way you have? Oh, man, that's a great question. You know, it started back with a promise I made to myself in undergrad before I got to Nike. Um, I told myself that I I would never allow that company or any company to dictate my value. Like, I know who I am. I know what I'm good at. I know what I'm I'm bad at. You know, I know what I want to improve at. So what they think of me does not change how I feel about myself. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't feel like it's it's it's. I'm in a situation of piety where I'm like, oh, man, thank you so much, sir. Thank you so much for letting me in. I'm grace- gracious and I'm tremendously thankful, but I know I earned my way here. Mm. Nobody can argue with my track record. And I think what we do and while we're tricked and while we fall for that game to believe that we we don't have the room to fail, right, which I think is a lie, uh, is because we come here looking for them to validate us. We come here looking for them to tell us we're accepted. I do not care. Mm-hmm. I don't care because at the end of the day, what people respect is effort and authenticity. And I feel like if people love me for being somebody I'm not, man, I can't live with myself. I'd rather you not like me for me authentically being me than accept me for me tap dancing for you. And most of the venture capital people here, that most of them were either operators at one point, building their own businesses. So I'm very real and raw about the emotions and the roller coaster and making sure that they understand that I'm a human first. I put that out there for people. I am a human and a person before I am an opportunity. Mm. So treat me as a person. Second, 
when you meet the venture capitalists who've never been operators, who aren't domain expertise, who are, who are basically intelligent generalists, I remind them that I am the expert in this moment. The power dynamics should not change. I'm bringing you an opportunity to get something from me, not the other way around. So you got to just understand like we present so much earning potential. We move culture as a people. Mm. We create and innovate with zero dollars. Like everything we do is born out of desperation most of the time. Like True. we need to do this, we figure it out. Exactly. Right. And so I just have never been, and a lot of it is coming from being around, you know, having a good fortune of, you know, working underneath Michael Jordan, seeing how he moved mm. and understanding that that man never, never, never backed down for what he believed was true. And he was like, Jason, if I have to, you know, walk away from something, if they ask me to compromise who I am, I'd rather walk away. Mm. And you just get, you just get trained to see like what it means to be great. I hear all these people talking about, man, I'm gonna kill it. I'm gonna crush it. Look, I work for a legend, a man that's a living legend. Right. I saw his discipline. I saw his energy. Mm. I saw how he navigated tough conversations. And I'll tell you one thing, a lot of the stuff we see on these blogs and all these people talking about how to crush it and build and kill it and smash it and run through the wall and none of it's real when you see what a legend does like i worked with mm. a legend like and i'm telling you man the number one trait that that man had was sense of and knowledge of self mm. knowledge of self michael jordan has the clearest picture of who he is and he doesn't deviate from his core silicon valley you know we come here man i mean the title tells you it's not real it's not called realism valley it's silicon <laughs> that's not a that's not a that's not an organic material yo so that's crazy how something. real is that <laughs> You know what I mean? And yeah. so coming here, you have to understand that this place is, it's not organic, it's synthetic. So you have to have the expectation that who you meet may be fake. What mm. they want from you is transactional and just expect it. Don't be surprised by it. Um, and that's how I've been navigating, man. I'm not surprised when people want to take stuff from me. I'm not surprised when people say things because I'm like, I've expected it. This is the game I entered into. This is the rules of the game. I choose to react to it or I choose to ignore it. I just don't react to that stuff. Mm. I focus on my core. Focus on my mission, and I keep it moving. Amazing. Um, the concept of um, and the dynamics of play, right? Um, yeah. Because there's really no no age cutoff for play. Um, mm -mm. from babies to freaking old people, you know what I mean? Like people in the '80s and '90s. <laughs> what does um, what can you share with us that you've into your studies into superheroic that? How does play bring us closer? Bring us closer together, um, makes our bonds tighter, or even help us evolve as people. If it, if it, if it, if if I can go that far. Oh man, absolutely. I mean, that's the that's the underpinning hypothesis behind my research was understanding the immediacy of the transference of power in real time. So when you're playing a game of tag, right, mm -hmm. you're gonna be it, and then you tag somebody else. Okay, so you know, right in that moment, you're gonna probably be it maybe four or five times in an hour. So you get over the stigma of being, you know, uh, being a loser and being a winner because the transference of power is so rapid mm. that you're desensitized to that feeling. And now you get back on your feet and you pursue your goal again, catch that person, they're it. If I'm playing a game of football, I drop a pass, I may not get on the field again. So I don't have a second chance to come back from my mistake. Mm. Right. So that's the first piece. The immediacy of the transference of power makes it more likely to build resilience and grit and persistence. Because mm. the more you're exposed to that transference in a real time environment, right. the more likely you are to bias towards action of pursuing something that seems difficult. Chasing someone is like chasing a goal, chasing a dream. You don't quit because you don't want to be it anymore. Right. That's the first piece. 
The second piece is play is egalitarian. As you mentioned, it's accessible to all. There's no wrong way to play. Like if I'm playing Duck, Duck, Goose, I'm playing Freeze Tag, I'm playing Dodgeball. Look, man, I'm going to play my way. As long as we win, I'm good. The beautiful thing about that is it's not, it's not, it's not linear and it's non-performative. So you can't say that this person didn't do their job because there's no wrong way to play and the rules are very well known. Mm-hmm. Um, the, also, the beautiful thing about play is that it's colloquial, right? So if I go and say, all right, I did this in my sabbatical. I traveled around the world and I started to play indigenous games with people. I wanted to understand the origins of the games we play. Mm-hmm. So when I got to a certain, certain region, Aratoa, which is New Zealand, I started playing like some of the local games like netball mm. or playing there, you know, playing rugby in the street. I realized like I don't have to speak your language. I just need to understand the rules of the game. Mm-hmm. So you go to Mexico, you go to Africa and the continent, you go to China. I would just pull up on people. I see them with a ball. I'm like, what's that? What's the ball? Mm-hmm. Teach me. And then they'll teach me through the game about their, uh, 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 you know, and through learning the game, I was able to understand the culture. Mm. Right. The definition of competition is not universal. The Western mm. version of competition means I need to take something from you mm. in order for me to win. Globally, competition isn't viewed that way. Wow. Right. There's the Ubuntu factor. Right. Like it's all of us are better than one of us. Right. Mm. And so understanding mm. the, the nuances of what competition mean, understanding the nuances of what play mean. I mean, for me, it just I think it's the most critical portion of health and wellness that has been underfunded and under researched wow. is the power of community and connectivity through play. So that's why I'm so passionate about it, because I've seen it in real time. I've seen grown men with Confederate flag belt buckles give me a hug after they hit me talk about my research and then tell me, like, man, you reminded me of when I was a kid. Wow. And this is a dude who I'm like, man, this brother got a Confederate flag on his belt. We about to have to argue. And he's like, no, nah, brother, I just I never heard people talk about play that that's important. And. Can I keep in touch? You know, mm. and it's, it's, it's beautiful because mm. everybody can agree that we just want our kids to do better than us. That's mm-hmm. it. And so I just present equality through acceptance that all of us need to play a little bit more. Fire, fire. Um, man, um, I actually had another question on top of that. Um, that I got lost in the last joint, but go ahead. It'll, it'll come back to me. Yeah. Uh, just just on a just on a personal um note, you know, can you uh just give us like three albums, three movies like uh that that you enjoy that you know kind of help recharge your batteries or you know um that you just enjoy to your core or keep you focused, keep you motivated to keep you know out here and really uh pushing your your purpose forward. Oh man, yeah, I I give you albums and a couple books, nice. uh, and books one movie. One movie, yeah. So, the number one book that I read um, is several, um, but the one that I read, of course, is the Bible. So that that's kind of the clicheish one, but it's mm-hmm. important. I mean, it's the basic instructions before leaving Earth, according to Wu Tang. I agree with that. Um, mm. You know, then I also read the Emperor's Handbook on Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Mm-hmm. He's one of my leadership heroes. I always talk about that book. Are you a stoic? Um, the Al- I am a stoic. Yeah, yep, I am a stoic. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, bro. It's the only way to navigate, man. There yeah. you go. <laughs> there you go. I'm yeah. trying to tell my people. Yep. yep. Telling you, man, that battlefield of the mind is real, bro. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm reading a book now about trauma called The Body Keeps the Score because we've also misclassified what trauma means. Trauma in our society thinks it's a horrific event. Trauma can happen in microaggressions, right? Trauma mm. can be self doubt. Trauma can be 
you know, uh, loneliness. Trauma isn't always violent, but mm. the body physically is the score of the trauma you've experienced. So I'm learning a lot about that, uh, you know, for my own restoration plan, but also my ability to keep serving children. So that's another book I love. And then, you know, like I said, um, um, Out of Egypt, which is a super dope book by Anne Rice. She was she wrote a book that talked about Jesus when he was a kid in Egypt, because that's a portion of his life we don't know about. Mm-hmm. And like mm-hmm. Jesus as a kid, wow, that dude was out there like, I'm going to kill this homie and bring him back to life because dude mess with her. <laughs> so then she just, <laughs> she made oh, up wow. this fictitious story, but it, but it was historically accurate and it was beautifully written wow. about what Jesus would have been like as a kid. He was a regular kid like all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, music wise, man, like the, the muse for my company is John Coltrane's The Love Supreme. Mm. The reason why is because the liner notes in that album, he said, oh, that's my dog. Uh, yeah. uh, he said the liner notes in that album, you know, he had this beautiful kind of dedication to God that said he made the album for like an audience of one. It's, it's his best attempt to say thank you to God for, for blessing him. Mm. This company is my best attempt wow. at saying thank you to God for blessing him. So I Love Supreme. I like that. And then, and then Illmatic. Illmatic saved my life, man. So mm. anytime I design, I listen to Illmatic on repeat. And when I say it saved my life, I mean like literally, like I was listening to that album sitting in my mom's Honda Accord when my boys had got lit up and I was supposed to be with them. But Whoa. because I chose to wait outside, buy the album first, it had the t-shirt with it, the whole everything. I'm a little kid in 1994, you know, sitting here with my eyes closed, listening to this man who was like Langston Hughes over a premiere beat. Uh-huh. describe my life and then at that same moment something happened that could have changed my trajectory so those two albums bro was like mm-hmm. that's it for me i listen to them on repeat anytime i create something mm, fire amazing actually i do remember that question uh, um you being such a critical thinker um how do you feel now about today's society especially with how like gen z is so attached to social media so attached to digital the art of even going outside and playing it's like they not they not about their life at all, like right, like they, everything is just strictly like you know they wake up on their phones, IG, Snapchat, and classrooms, all like it's 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 kind of crazy. How do you feel that's gonna affect, um, you know, society and uh, the youth moving forward? Oh man, I, I literally was just having this conversation, man, last week. So, basic developmental milestones will not be met. We'll have a generation mm, of children agree. who will seek to be told what to do. They won't be able to set a path. They just go follow other people's paths. I do believe there will be children who um, who thrive and survive. And those are the children who will come from regions that we typically classify as third world because down there, they don't have a technology problem. They got a resource problem, mm-hmm. right? And so here we're over, we're, it's like we were undereducated, but we overeat and we over self entertain. So mm-hmm. I believe the Gen the Gen Zs in North America, specifically U.S., will globally be behind because they won't be asking the critical questions that it requires to innovate, to lead, to move a culture forward. Mm-hmm. They'll just simply wait on someone and tell them something, and they'll be confident in their ignorance. Because our number one export in America is our confidence. We mm-hmm. being real, like we the most confident nation on the planet. Even when mm-hmm. we wrong, we still say we right. That's a fact. And, <laughs> That's a good number. You know what I'm saying? That's good. All right. Yeah, man. And you figure when you have children who are growing up. In a culture that promotes, you know, uh, counterfactualism or this whole notion of fake news and promotes the fact that you can have an opinion without no experience, but then you also are conditioned or consequence, right? No empathy. I mean, you basically are breeding sociopathic tendencies. I can say something and never be held accountable for it because 
I mean, like in real life, yo, we had like real bullies, like the gooch. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. so you say something, you're going to get smacked. I say it in social, I could put my phone down, I don't have to worry about it. Mm-hmm. So the, the accountability isn't there. But the hope and the silver lining is that even though the technology industry has created these compulsion loops and these addictive technologies, kids still prefer physical interaction. They need it, right? They need it. It's kinesthetic learning. It's the basis of of our connection as humans. We need touch. We need to feel. So when you present a healthy alternative that speaks the language of tech, that speaks the language of future forward narratives, then kids will gravitate toward that. And that's what we're doing. We're not shaming them for using a phone. We're just trying to turn the phone into our artifact of play. How do we include that now in the play dynamic versus trying to say, put it down. It's like, no, no, keep it. But what is the phone now going to do? The phone needs to become an active participant in the play endeavor. And that's where all our research is headed. That's what we're trying to push. But I have hope for Gen Z, man. Like I see them, they listen to the same things we listen to. And trust me, they fed up. They don't, because they're, they're a multi, they're a multi-racial generation. Mm-hmm. And they're so, like, I don't understand why I can't have friends that look like, like my yeah. homeboy from Sweden, my other boy from Korea, what yeah. you talking about? Like, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's a good so point. I, I got, I got hope for them, you know? Yeah, that's fire, Absolutely. man. Yo, you on uh, you on Driven Minds? We ask all our guests this. Um, you know, what drives you? What gives you the the passion to go? I mean, you you definitely um, opened up your 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 mind and heart to us. But you know, at your core, like, what is the thing that just keeps you going every day? Man, it's a great question. I would say outside of my outside of my honest my honest fear of disappointing God. That's the God's mm. honest truth, man. I feel like I've been so fortunate and so blessed. Wow. To, to do the things I'm doing, I'm only running a race. I'm only performing for an audience of one, man. Like, I make my mistakes. I sin. I, I, man, you know, I do everything everybody else does. But at the end of the day, I only really care about, you know, seeing my grandma in heaven. That's it. Mm. Like, I'm, I want to see my grandma again. So I know in this life, it's not, I'm not going to be measured by my works. I'm going to be measured by my heart and my intent. So when I wake up, I ask myself, man, like, where's my heart at? Am I doing what I believe I'm supposed to be doing with the time I'm giving? Mm-hmm. And that's that's it, man. My little 24 hours, my wife always jokes with me. She's like, I swear to God, God gave you 36 hours and the rest of us 24. Like, you do so much. <laughs> uh-huh. it's, you know, it's just because I'm so... <laughs> So I'm so thankful to be to be awake and alive. Like I don't want to waste a minute. I'm trying. I'm trying my best to enjoy it. You that. know, and I'm trying my best to do everything with a with a with a with a compassionate and genuine heart. Because, man, I, I think the thing that's happened to minority culture is we've been very well conditioned to know how to deal with poverty and difficult situations. We've never been taught how to expect and deal with mm. the outcomes of success. So we mm. fail when we succeed because we don't know how to maintain it. Mm-hmm. We don't have that skill set. We've never been given the understanding from an emotional standpoint. How do you sustain success? We know how to chase the bag. But right. How do you keep the bag? Right. right? right. We, and so for me, I'm like, I keep the bag by making sure I keep in touch with what really is driving me, man. It's my it's my love to, to live a life that's 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 worth dying for. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I just want to stand for something in my life. I don't want to leave here and be forgotten. I refuse. I want a street named after me. I want kids to know what I did. I want other people to be inspired. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to leave this planet to be average, bro. Like you get one life. If you're not trying to be exceptional, that's like spitting in God's face and saying, nah, what you gave me not good enough. So I'm just going to chill. Nah, man, like make the most out of every day. Cause it could be your last. That's a fact. Um, yeah. Honestly, I'm going to be running back this podcast a few Yo, times yeah, just to listen facts. to it. <laughs> Definitely, Absolutely, man. Jason, uh, thank you for coming on, man. Where can we uh, find you on the socials? 
Oh, man, I'm easy, man. I don't have no tricky names. Just Jason, J-S-O-N, Maiden on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Um, and then at Superheroic, same thing, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, um, superheroic.com. You know, you see me out and about, pull up, say hello. Um, don't ask for no awkward sneaker discounts. That happens, but it is. <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, it is what it is. Um, but, you know, just, you know, just I'm a regular dude, man. I just happen to have a skill set that's visual. That's it. But, yeah, you can find me anywhere, man. I'm, 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 out, I'm, out, I'm out and about, man. Indeed, man. You're extraordinary, brother. And um, we look forward to all the amazing things you do in culture, man. We, we always plan on championing you, man. So, uh uh, thanks again for your time. Absolutely. That's a hundred, man. Like no we problem, always say man. at this time. Stay driven. Stay driven. <laughs>